As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we talk to three experts on one issue shaping the news both here and overseas. In a few months' time here in Australia, we will be releasing our next year's budget, where we decide how to spend the nation's money and what projects will face the chop. Predictably, every year we have a mass of people in the media and a collection of far-out fringe senators all calling to slash one item in particular foreign aid. Money that developed nations give towards developing nations. People ask, when every dollar counts, why are we spending money on Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu whilst infrastructure in Australia is falling apart? Why would Australia or any nation for that matter in this highly competitive system want to give money to another country? Are we doing it out of the goodness of our own hearts? Or is there something in it for us? Well, For that, we turn to our first guest. Part one, soft power. We have an image that aid is really all about altruism to other countries. But actually, if you look at the way the government in its most recent foreign policy white paper or indeed on its website where it talks about its aid program, it's really upfront about the idea that this is something that advances Australia's national interests. Matt McDonald is a professor of political science and international studies at the University of Queensland. He's also an expert in Australian foreign policy, and he joins us today. So I think those examples are really pretty obviously directed at here is something that's in Australia's interests that we can prevent instability, we can prevent, yes, as you note, piracy, um, or contribute at least to its minimisation. So let's start nice and simple. What is foreign aid? Foreign aid or official development assistance is essentially resources that are transferred from developed or OECD states, so in simple terms, wealthy states, to less wealthy states to help to facilitate their economic development. Can you elaborate a bit on that? There's a wide range of things that fit under the general banner of foreign aid. So sometimes you're looking at uh, direct contributions to another country's uh, treasury. So basically a transfer of financial resources. We see that in Australia's aid towards Papua New Guinea, for example. Um, in most cases, it's uh, the focus is more on uh, what we might call tide aid. So it's essentially aid that has a particular objective and that might be around um, building um, infrastructure or a hospital for example it might be around programs so we invest in programs that try to help with longer term how do we build literacy levels how do we increase sanitation in this country or that country then there's the sort of dodgier more questionable elements of aid that focus on things that can be um, technically included in an aid program like elements of Australia's controversial asylum uh, policy, uh, as well as consultancy work that uh, Australia pays a significant amount of its aid to consultants to develop 
uh, accounts of what's happening in different parts of the world. So again, that's a little bit more controversial or less basically about addressing sustainable development goals or the imperatives of development and poverty alleviation in the developing world. So let's stay on Australia for a bit. Who are the biggest recipients of Australian aid? Uh, our immediate region. So uh, Papua New Guinea is the largest recipient of Australian aid, of course, a former um, colony of Australia, so it makes a good deal of sense. Um, and then beyond that, Indonesia has been traditionally a very large recipient of Australian aid, um, in bilateral terms still, I think, seconds largest. And then most of the rest of Australia's aid program is focused on our immediate region, in, Pacific, in particular the uh, Pacific Island uh, states. That's really been the focus of Australian aid. So there was a time under the Rudd government where they were the, the, in an attempt to get on the UN Security Council, our aid program not only grew in terms of size, but the range of countries that were envisaged as recipients of aid expanded significantly. A lot of that's been pulled back under the subsequent Conservative government and there's been a real focus on our immediate region. So foreign aid can essentially be boiled down to a number of different categories. So let's go through a few of them. Uh, the first would be health aid. This is where a country would pay money to another country to help them research cures for diseases or help them treat people in their country. Uh, a good example of this would be Australia paying money to African nations to help them contain and treat diseases inside their borders. Uh, how else would you describe this type of aid? So... Obviously, there is. You could you could focus on the general. Uh, you know, if you were thinking in cosmopolitan terms, for example, you'd say, of course, it's a positive thing that if we have resource capacity to address health crises in other countries, that's absolutely what uh, we should do. That that's a moral obligation that developed states have in general. For Australia, obviously, that we're the particular example of. Um, say pandemics is, is not necessarily the normal focus of health aid. Most of it focuses on things like how can we prevent the spread, how can we assist in preventing the spread of malaria or help with say um, non-communicable um, diseases like uh, diabetes in the Pacific. That's been a big issue over there. You would say with pandemics, you could sell that to Australian population as any work we do to minimise the spread of this disease in other countries makes it less likely that we'll actually experience those uh, health effects within Australia. In the Australian context is that you could sell this as this is an important investment in the economic development of that country. It allows the country to be more productive, to develop more growth, economic wealth, and through that, Australia potentially benefits through trade as well as minimising the possibility that you'll see increasing levels of state fragility if there is significant health problems that undermine the capacity of the um, society to function. And obviously, fragile nations are less than ideal business partners. Uh, the next would be business aid. This is where we donate money to a country, but we request it goes to a certain project or a certain company. For instance, we might give money to Vietnam to build a factory that makes cheap goods for the Australian market, you know, cheaper than we could make them at home. We may also stipulate that the construction company that builds this factory is also Australian. I mean, how common is this type of aid? That's definitely a more controversial example. Um, so, and it's been a subject of plenty of critique recently. So, there's been lots of examples of what we would call tied aid, where Australian companies are ultimately benefiting from 
Australian aid program. So the example that you you briefly gave is a real one where Australian companies are uh, um, funded to build infrastructure projects in developing countries. That um, money that we're giving to Australian companies to do that is actually technically part of Australia's aid program. Now, there may, of course, be benefits for, you would like to think benefits for the country in which that infrastructure is developed and established in those other countries, but the criticism in this context is often that um, we tend to orient towards infrastructure projects because it's something physical that we can point to and say, look, this is where our aid has gone. So often it's the case, unfortunately, with lots of broader programs that try to address more systemic issues like sanitation or health. It's not necessarily easy to say these are the um, manifestation to point to Australian taxpayers and say, do you see exactly where your aid money has gone? If you build a great big bridge, that's obviously a bit different. And then that other criticism has noted that it's still aid money that is going, that is arguably staying within Australia and supporting Australian companies. It's a way of Australia um, subsidising business. So there may be some flow on positives associated with that form of aid, but it's also a form of aid that's been a little bit controversial. And uh, yes, some aid um, advocacy groups have been concerned. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So the next type of aid would be military aid. Uh, the US, for instance, gives Israel somewhere around $383 million in military aid each year. And this comes out of their foreign aid budget. That's just donations of weapons to Israel. Uh, to bring it back to Australia, though, we donate around $320 million to Indonesia each year, with a big part of that including uh, donating weapons and helicopters to Indonesia to fight pirates and protect our goods as they come through Indonesian waters. Can you elaborate a little on that? It's the previous example, of course, there's an economic, immediate economic benefit to Australian business through those forms of aid. But in this case... The argument is if we can help build governance capacity in other countries, uh, it makes it less likely that we'll then either have to be called upon in the case of an emergency in those countries, that we might be threatened by the um, sort of the growth of things like uh, criminal gangs or um, terrorist groups in other countries if they are better able to um, exercise control within the state. So this has been a real issue since 2001 um, that Australia has really emphasised the importance of building governance capacity in other countries and would say, well, look at the coup cycle in Fiji. If you look at the instability we've seen over a period of time in the Solomon Islands, the threat to Australia associated with terrorist groups in Indonesia, it makes sense for Australia to try to build military governance capacity in other countries. But... There is a lot of criticism about that as well because obviously it's not aid that's directly addressing um, poverty alleviation and sustainable development goals. The other type of aid is money for decisions. This is where a government directly ties the money to the recipient doing a favour for the country. For example, Australia paid the government of Nauru 
millions of dollars to process and house our refugees in offshore detention centers. Does what is essentially a large-scale bribe happen often in geopolitics? Those, thankfully, are relatively unusual in recent Australian history and indeed in broader aid policy that you wouldn't generally get instances where individual bilateral decisions around separate issues are tied directly to aid programs. Of course, that's been a big issue with um, the Trump administration in the US, not least around the um, impeachment issues. But um, in the Australian context, it's rarer. That was definitely an example. We've also seen it um, hinted at at different points um, when Australia had issues with the uh, execution of Sukumaran and Chan uh, some years ago by the Indonesian government. At that point, Tony Abbott indicated that as a significant recipient of Australia's aid, they would like to think that Indonesia would be willing to listen to them over that particular issue. So again, that was an indication that Australia was attempting to link aid money specifically to um, particular sets of bilateral arrangements. And that's particularly problematic from the point of view of what aid should be and how it should function. So you just said you had some concerns with the Australian aid program. Uh, What are some of your concerns with it? I would say there are three. So my concerns, my main criticisms of the Australian aid program, one would be that it's far too small um, and shrinking. So at point around 0.2% of our gross national income, um, the lowest it's uh, been for a long time, and it's tied increasingly to inflation. So as we see economic growth, that's likely to go down in real in real terms. So we don't give very much aid at all. We're certainly a long way off the 0.7% of gross national income that the um, UN recommends. So that that's my first problem. We don't, we really don't give enough aid. The second problem I'd have is uh, that we uh, exclusively give aid to our immediate region. And some would say, well, it would be appropriate to recognise our moral obligations to um, countries in the developing world. But if we take that argument one step further, then you would end up with a situation in which you know, states in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, who aren't necessarily strategically important for any major aid donors would just be neglected. So. Partly it's about which countries we give aid to, but more importantly, the forms of aid we give and the way increasingly we emphasise the national interest means you see increasing emphasis on things like how can we build economic growth so that these countries will become trade partners? How can we give uh, military aid to ensure these countries are better able to deal with governance issues that won't then blow back uh, for Australia and Australians? How can we use our aid program to fund government services that we are committed to, like elements of our asylum uh, policy. And then the third uh, the third issue I would have is one around the um, use of the scale of fant- so-called phantom aid in the Australian context. So there's been traditionally, Australia's been under a lot of pressure for having too much of its aid um, given to consultants within Australia and beyond. Um, who are essentially providing um, advice to the government about what happens in different countries. Australia has a very high percentage of this so-called phantom aid relative to others. One of the other concerns, though, is the realisation that if we stop giving aid money to nations like Fiji, they are likely to get desperate and turn towards someone like China for the money. 
uh, China would gain major influence over that government and might force them to switch their alignment on a number of key issues that range from trade deals to deep water naval ports. Do you think this factors into the decision on who we should send our aid money to? Certainly, that's been a really um, specific concern. Again, that this government's been quite clear that um, they are going to ring fence most of the Pacific from aid cuts, uh, in part because they're concerned about increasing Chinese influence in the region and indeed the broader Pacific step up uh, that we've seen from this government is really about Chinese influence and the idea, you know, Australia is still at the moment significantly the largest donor in the Pacific region uh, and wants to retain that sense that we are the um, sort of the big brother, if you like, in the in the region. The danger of states increasingly looking to China would be um, potentially alignment with China on a range of international issues would be if you think in terms of the liberal international order more broadly it could be seen as a potential threat to australia's interests in terms of we want um, a particular political agenda at the international level and this is a concern for australia if we see increasing chinese influence in this way so after all this would you still agree that our foreign aid budget is incredibly important to australia's interests if we view it through the lens of how is this actually helping Australia and Australians, um, we can certainly see that a very large percentage of Australian aid, at least a third, directly contributes to Australian businesses in terms of the delivery of those programs and directly contributes to um, even individual uh, consultants based in Australia through the work that they're doing as part of the aid program. So there's significant direct contribution but even then, a lot of the remaining aid, you would say, well, a large part of it is defined according to will this aid, if we assist with governance capacity in the Solomon Islands or if we help build um, private industry in Thailand, will these things ultimately serve to benefit Australia in the longer run through creating, through minimising, say, our obligations to intervene in other countries or to help them manage a crisis? minimising transnational crime, um, creating markets for Australian goods and, and um, furthering trade with those countries, and then the reputational benefits of having that close relationship with another country. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Foreign aid is something the public just doesn't seem to grasp the complexity of very well. 
and people dramatically overestimate how much we spend on foreign aid. In 2016, the average Australian estimated we spent 16% of our GDP on foreign aid, when in reality, we spent closer to 0.22% of our GDP on it. And even with that sliver of aid, it's incredibly important to our national security. Almost all of our aid actually goes on to benefit Australia one way or another, through trade and strategic goals, sometimes even paying ourselves directly. At one point, we used our foreign aid budget to fund and house our offshore detention programs for asylum seekers, making Australia the third biggest recipient of Australia's foreign aid at the time. But there seems to be this perception around that the money is only used to build wells and schools in countries far, far away. So let's use some real world examples and see exactly how Australia uses its aid to maintain influence over many of the nations of the Pacific Ocean. And to understand this better, we turn to our second guest. Part two, island hopping. Well, PNG is obviously a very significant recipient of Australian aid, uh, largely because PNG is not a small Pacific Island country, it's a very large Pacific Island country. And also it has very long established ties with Australia as a former, Papua New Guinea is a former colony of Australia. And generally, historically, we expect, it, it, you can point to strong aid flows between former colonisers and their colonial what were their colonial properties? Dr. Tess Newton Kane is a former lecturer of law at the University of the South Pacific and has more than 20 years' experience working in the Pacific Islands region. She is also the principal of the TNC Pacific Consulting Company, and her clients have included the governments of Vanuatu, Australia, New Zealand, the UN, the World Bank, as well as the Asian Development Bank. And she joins us today. So, Papua New Guinea receives um, the largest share. Uh, other significant beneficiaries from Australian aid are Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, um, and to a lesser extent Fiji. Va uh, Australia tends to have stronger connections with the Melanesian countries rather than countries in Polynesia and Micronesia. Um, the, the Micronesian countries have a much stronger relationship with the US and that's reflected in their aid flows and the countries of Polynesia, places like Tonga and Samoa, have um, much stronger relationships with New Zealand and that's reflected in, in the aid flows that they receive. So Pacific Island nations take money from Australia or China or is it common for them to take money from both sides? Well, it, it depends which countries you're talking about. So within the Pacific Islands region, there are four countries who have diplomatic relationships with Taiwan and therefore they are not in a position to receive development assistance from China. Um, other than those countries, there are a number of countries that have very long established relationships with China and, um, and again, as part of those relationships with China, they receive development assistance. So, for example, Vanuatu has had diplomatic relationships with China for 40 years um, and other countries such as Fiji and Papua New Guinea can point to other very long standing relationships with that country. And, and as part of, just as Australia has a range of relationships with the countries it gives aid to, so does China. And, you know, the, the, the provision of um, foreign aid and development assistance is part of how those relationships are sustained and developed over time. 
So what do you think is Australia's biggest strategic goal in the Pacific? So as we know, Australia is um, in the throes of, of uh, implementing or acting on the Pacific step up that has a, you know, a fairly lengthy provenance, but I guess is associated most closely with Prime Minister Morrison's speech at Laverack Barracks. Um, and the avowed objectives of this are that this is about uh, building relationships, this is about um, engaging more and better with the Pacific family, and that term is used um, sort of knowingly in, in various different ways. It's about um, supporting regional prosperity and uh, security, and it's about um, building more connectivity between Pacific Island countries and between the Pacific and Australia. So that's, that's its avowed objectives. There are, there's certainly, um, there are certainly indications that, and, and certainly the perception among many people in the Pacific Islands region that I spend quite a bit of time talking with, tell me that they see a lot of what is um, being rolled out by Australia at the moment as being quite reactive, and they see it as being a reaction to um, an increased presence of China in the region including an increased flow of aid from China to Pacific Island countries. So Australia is increasing its footprint in the Pacific, but is Beijing doing the same? I, do, I, do, I don't want to create the impression that I'm saying that the Chinese presence in the region has not changed recently because it has. It's increased. So in terms of Chinese presence in the region, there has been a very significant increase um, over the last few years. And also, and that includes an increase in aid, and also the ways in which China is engaging with Pacific Island countries has also changed. So we're seeing things now um, in the region that we didn't see before. A very good example of that is the increase of tourists from China visiting Pacific Island countries. So for five years ago, that was something that was pretty much unheard of, but Fiji just recently put out some figures which indicate a significant increase in tourism from China into Fiji and and we've and we'll see that in other countries as well. We've seen a much um, a much bigger interest in investing in Pacific Island countries by Chinese private sector investors. So as well as the state-owned enterprises that tend to be the ones that um, carry out these big infrastructure projects such as building wharves and roads and sports stadium, all of which has happened across the region. We're also seeing Chinese investors um, buying up businesses in the private sector. So in Vanuatu, they've made significant inroads into the tourism industry, buying up um, tour, tour activities, um, hotels, restaurants and that sort of thing, um, and investing in real estate. So. Those are, those are new aspects of the Chinese presence in the region that come further to other longer established relationships. And, and the aid provision or the, the financing of um, activities, whether through aid or through concessional finance, is certainly, has certainly increased dramatically and is a, very, um, is a very significant change in the overall landscape. So why is China so interested in this region? China portrays its assistance to countries like Tonga and Samoa and Fiji and other Pacific Island countries 
very much in terms of South-South cooperation. So China, you know, part of the rhetoric is, well, we're a developing country, you're developing countries, we've learned, you know, we've learned stuff about alleviating poverty, we can share that with you. And so that's part of how the, um, these initiatives and the, these relationships are positioned and framed in the conversations in the Pacific. Um, the Pacific island countries are, some of them are very small, you know, Tonga has a population of 100,000 or something, um, but they're all, they're, each of them is a whole country and they all have a whole vote in places like the UN um, and the WHO and all of those global institutions. And so, you know, there are opportunities. The more, the more time you spend with people, the more likely you are, the more opportunities you have to talk to them about stuff that's important to you and the more opportunities you have to uh, encourage or persuade them to support you in those things that are important to you and that's you know that's part of that's part that's what diplomacy is about so what would you say are the biggest differences between how Australia does foreign aid and how the Chinese do foreign aid well there are two significant differences one is that Australia has up until recently generally favored aid by way of grant funding so that is we give you money and you don't have to pay it back we give you money to do ABC and that's it. We have given you that money. Whereas Chinese development assistance has included some grant funding, but there's also been a greater use of concessional finance, um, which is essentially debt, but at a um, debt that is in theory better than commercial debt. Now, that has changed very recently with Australia seeking to give Pacific Islands debt. Uh, by way of the infrastructure uh, financing facility for the Pacific, which was essentially $3 billion worth of funding, um, most of which is debt, callable debt. So that kind of blurs that difference because it's, it's not clear. I, I, and, I, and there's been very little take up of that offer from Australia. They don't have any projects on their books yet. They'll be working very hard this year to get some on the books to actually justify the proof of concept. But it does open the question that if, if, as we heard from some policymakers in Australia a year or so ago, if there's a concern about how much debt Pacific Island countries are taking on uh, from China, it does open the question of, well, why, why would they? You know, if your concern is that they're carrying too much debt, why do you want to give them more debt? Um, unless you somehow think that your debt's better than someone else's debt, which may or may not be the case. So that's one significant difference. And as I say, that difference has blurred. So it's not to say that Australia isn't giving grants because it still is. And the majority of the aid is via grant funding. But they are now also looking as to how they can um, persuade Pacific Island governments that if they're going to take on debt, they should take on Australian debt, not not Chinese debt. The, the, another significant uh, difference which um, it doesn't always get appreciated is that Australia's aid is monitored or documented through the um, OECD uh, Development Assistance uh, DAC I don't know what it stands for but it's essentially the countries in the OECD that are aid donors they report what they do by way of aid. So they report how much they give, who they give it to, 
what it's spent on and they also abide by a certain set of principles that are about good practice when it comes to doing aid so that means things like you know um, supporting gender equity or not giving aid to do things like you know build arms factories or that's a very um, out there example but there are a number of principles that guide good practice when it comes to aid and Australia also is signed up to the uh, Cairns Compact which is about donors that work in the Pacific agreeing to work together to coordinate better so that the aid the transaction costs associated with receiving aid particularly by small countries with small bureaucracies are kept to a minimum now whether or not that works very well is a different question the issue here is that china is not part of any of those frameworks so china is not a member of the oecd dac so doesn't report its aid in the same way as those countries does doesn't doesn't necessarily isn't bound by those principles isn't a member of the keynes compact and so what this means is that there is a level of um, opacity to the way China uses its aid in the region and across the globe, I guess, that is, is not as present in, that is not present in relation to Australia. And so that creates, um, that obviously creates issues for people that like to, that if, if we want to know, well, how much aid is coming, what's it being spent on, who, you know, who's delivering it, well, it's, it's relatively easy to find that information in relation to Australia. It's very hard to find that information in relation to China. So people like the Lowy Institute that collate that information for their aid map have to do a lot of trawling through various documents, both official and press releases and newspaper reports, to get some sense of what the aid flows are. But they can't, they can't necessarily say, yes, we are certain because some things, you know, it's not, you're just thinking, well, have I read, you know, they said the same thing twice. Does this amount here, is it the same thing as this in this news report or are they two different things? So if we were to pull out our aid from the Pacific to save a tiny amount of money in our budget, are we likely to suffer backlash from our allies abroad? What a question. Um, Australia is a member of the Five Eyes Alliance or grouping um, and is expected by Five Eyes partners um, along, you know, to have, to be the eyes and the ears and the voice and, and to know and to have, you know, to be um, there in terms of what's happening in the Pacific, particularly in Melanesia. Um, New Zealand can, can keep a closer eye on Polynesia, but when it comes to Melanesia, the US and the UK, you know, they're not really interested in what Australia thinks about the Middle East or Latin America, they've got that covered. What they need, what they don't know is what's going on in the Pacific and that's what they want Australia to be able to bring to the table um, on that score. So pulling out of the Pacific would not go down well with counterparts in either Washington or London. So for people who are suggesting we pull out our entire foreign aid budget, what would you say in response to that? Well. I've heard some of those comments made. Um, often they're made by people who have little or no understanding of how much the aid budget is. So they often um, overrepresent how much Australia spends on aid. I think Australia is now down to something like 0.2% of GNI 
as what it gives in aid. And Stephen Howes said recently that that puts Australia into the same category as places like Greece and Portugal that are recovering from major financial crises of their own. You know, it's really important that Australia just gets gets a bit, you know, gets a much firmer knowledge base in place before making decisions like, well, we should cut the aid budget. It's there, there is there is really there is nothing left to cut. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. This country's aid is used to cement our friends and allies and serve as a bulwark against nations looking to expand into what has historically been our backyard. We not only make money through increased trade and projects that make it easier for our companies to do business in the nation, but it also helps us sway the decisions in a more favourable direction toward Australia. So much of this nation's defence strategy, as well as protection of our ships and shipping lanes, relies on other nations working to protect our goods. If even a single tanker of ours was attacked coming through the small choke points in the Indonesian archipelago, it would cause the insurance on these boats to skyrocket, and that cost would be passed on to you. So investing in other nations has a number of strategic benefits, and without it, we are likely to spend billions more fighting fires we could have prevented preemptively in the first place. So to take a better look at our strategic goals with our foreign aid, we turn to our third guest. Part three, carrots and sticks. Foreign aid is never altruistic. That would be my, my opening summation. It's always been and always is regarded as, as an investment. And there are specific foreign policy objectives that are at play when a country gives foreign aid. Uh, mostly those revolve around security objectives and also trade and economic objectives. Will Clapton is a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. He is also the author of Risk and Hierarchy in International Society, Liberal Interventionism in the Post-Cold War Era. And he joins us today. So um, it's no surprise that, for instance, Australia gives most of its aid in its immediate region in the South Pacific and Southeast Asia, because that's where predominantly uh, most of our Australia's major interests uh, come into play in terms of security and economics and trade. So a lot of what we talked about already in this episode could be categorized as a country's soft power. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, it's a term popularized by um, Joseph Nye, I believe it was an American political scientist or international relations scholar. And it mostly refers to more intangible forms of power. So in international relations, Traditionally, a lot of the focus has been on hard power, uh, which relates to material things like military forces. So it's a very much focused on, you know, tanks, tanks, guns, bombs, and all that sort of stuff. Soft power is, uh, again, more intangible and relates to things like cultural influence, 
um, the ability to leverage things like foreign aid uh, and spending um, and to basically yeah, meet foreign policy objectives. So soft power, again, there's more intangible type things that allow a country to increase its influence, its reputation and its standing within the international community. Something I find interesting is which countries actually receive the aid. For the US, as an example, if uh, we're giving money to the poorest countries in the world, we would see the majority of aid flowing to places like South Sudan or the Central African Republic. But the biggest recipients of US foreign aid are actually Mexico and Pakistan, ranked 15th and 42nd in the world for GDP. Why do these comparatively rich countries get the majority of the aid? Yeah, as I, as I mentioned earlier in response to another question, foreign aid is, is strategic. Uh, it's not just given for the sake of it. It's not just given uh, the goodness of policymakers' hearts. It is a strategic initiative that is designed to advance specific foreign policy goals and objectives. That's why Australia gives the overwhelming majority of its foreign aid to countries in its own immediate region, because that's where, again, uh, Australia has many of its most significant foreign policy interests, goals, and also challenges. So, you know, America giving most of its foreign aid to, to Pakistan and Mexico uh, would reflect specific foreign policy interests that the United States have uh, in, or has, sorry, in the Australian case, again, uh, there are specific strategic concerns. So if you look at Australian aid to the South Pacific, uh, we give quite a lot of money uh, or quite a, a large proportion of our foreign aid budget is, is sent there because there are specific security concerns. Uh, Australia has long been keen to maintain A, its, its influence in the South Pacific, uh, but B, to also maintain stability amongst the Pacific Island countries. Um, so again, Australia gives aid to specific countries because there are specific reasons for doing so. But the US also gives aid to their enemies. In fact, the US gives large amounts of foreign aid to dictatorships like North Korea. What does the US gain from giving money to one of their largest enemies? Again, it's because they are they're seeking a specific return on their investment. So North Korea has a long history of leveraging its nuclear program or leveraging uh, the promise of winding down its aspirations for nuclear weapons uh, in return for gaining specific concessions from countries like the United States. So why would the US give foreign aid to North Korea? It will be because North Korea has promised to, to do something with respect to its nuclear program. That seems to be the, the main issue at the moment. Um, but in the 1990s, the North Korean government under Kim Jong-il promised to shut down a nuclear reactor uh, in return for specific concessions from the then Clinton administration with regard to US foreign policy to North Korea. So yeah, it, it sometimes the character of the, the government doesn't necessarily matter that much. Uh, if there are specific discrete things that a government like the United States can abstract, extract sorry, from giving its foreign aid to a country like North Korea, then, then sometimes they'll do so. So looking back where Australia spends its money, what are our main strategic goals in the Pacific? 
So at the moment, uh, there is probably two really big main goals that seems to focus the attention of, of most policymakers and observers on Australian foreign policy and, and overseas development assistance. Uh, one is the continuing and enduring uh, emphasis on, on good governance and on economic development and on the sorts of returns that Australia uh, might be able to gain from providing assistance. The other big one, aside from let's call it the economic return, is the increasing influence of China in the region, particularly in the South Pacific. And so there's been a lot of noise lately about uh, increased Chinese influence and increased Chinese foreign aid to South Pacific countries. And that has prompted a reaction from the Australian government, which is basically one in which Australia has uh, also stepped up its foreign aid and its aid funding to the South Pacific in order to maintain its influence in the region. So Australia, since the 1980s, has been the major provider of foreign aid in the South Pacific. It's often seen as the kind of regional power, um, if you will, in the South Pacific region, so the, the largest country. But China's increased foreign aid in the South Pacific has raised certain strategic challenges for Australia. Um, that's what's prompted the Pacific step up that's been pursued by the Morrison government, um, which includes things like uh, a new uh, Pacific Infrastructure Fund, which was launched in July last year, I believe, by the Morrison government, which uh, effectively provides uh, loans and grants for infrastructure development projects in the South Pacific. But uh, again, the two big things at the moment are strategic issues around China's rise and increasing influence in the region, and also the sorts of you know good governance and, and economic development returns that Australia wants to get from its overseas development assistance funding. So if Australia was to pull out of its foreign aid commitments, do you think China would move in to fill that void? Well, yeah, the, the fear is that China would absolutely step in and fill that void, and then Australia would effectively cede its position as the regional power in the South Pacific and would, would give up its influence amongst those Pacific island states. So that strategically would be seen by many, I would suggest, as, as a disaster, because one of the reasons why Australia wants so much influence in the South Pacific and wants to remain the primary power in that region is that those Pacific Island states are seen as potential launching pads for attacks against Australia. So strategically, the Australian government has always placed quite significant importance on maintaining influence and maintaining stable governments amongst the Pacific Island countries. Uh, this was the reason, or, or one of the reasons, why Australia launched the, the regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands in 2003. Uh, which very quickly was, was launched in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 terrorist attacks and the increasing concern on the part of the Howard government that uh, state failure or state weakness in countries like Solomon Islands would result in them becoming safe havens for, for terrorists and other transnational criminal groups which could then conduct nefarious activities or launch attacks directly against Australia um, from these launching pads in our near neighbourhood. Uh, so in order to stop that, uh, Australia, you know, um, undertook a, a really significant, quite interventionist assistance package and assistance mission in the Solomon Islands. And again, the, the specific threat has changed today, but it's still the kind of same context and the same general fear, right? So we're not talking so much about terrorists or other non-state actors kind of using 
states like the Solomon Islands as launching pads for attacks against Australia, but now we're talking about a potentially hostile foreign power coming in and being able to, to gain influence and standing in the region. Um, there was suggestions, I think it's towards the end of 2018, of uh, China being in talks with Vanuatu to build a naval base, and that got everybody in the strategic community in Australia up in arms, and you know, there was a lot of conjecture and concern, and uh, both the Chinese government and the Vanuatu government had to, to come out re relatively quickly and basically say, no, there's there's no plans for a naval base. But certainly something like that would be seen as um, incredibly challenging for Australia's security uh, and its strategic environment in the region. It's, it's all about making sure that we have a series of uh, friendly, stable countries that are free from any sort of foreign interference or influence except our own in the immediate region. Um, so yeah, it's almost like a, a bulwark, if you will, against you know hostile foreign powers. We have a very checkered history with the nation of East Timor, but at the moment through a gas deal signed by the Howard government, we give East Timor $1.7 billion in foreign aid each year. But we extract $7 billion worth of natural gas from East Timorese waters. Do you think this foreign aid is meant to help the country or is it almost a bribe to look the other way whilst we take what we want from their waters? Yeah, this one's an interesting one. And for me personally, it kind of highlights some of the, the tensions and the contradictions in, in Australia's foreign policy in the immediate region. And so, you know, we kind of give with one hand and take away with the other. With respect to East Timor, uh, you know, the, the history of Australia's engagement with East Timor and particularly our engagement with East Timor in relation to gas and oil deposits in the in the Timor Sea um, is is a is a fairly contentious one so there were you know stories that came out about Australian spying in East Timor um, in when we were negotiating the Timor Gap Treaty uh, the treaty itself when it was first um, when it was first implemented is seen as was seen as you know widely uh, and grossly unfair and, and disproportionate with Australia taking a, a large chunk of the revenue uh, and having access to a large chunk of the gas and oil deposits under the sea in the region. Um, indeed, I was reading a, a book just last year which was going through some of that history, talking about how Australia uh, removed itself from certain uh, arbitral processes in international courts around maritime delimitation and around uh, exploitation of resources um, in maritime domains uh, precisely because it wanted to force this really unfair and unequal treaty upon East Timor. So, I mean, my, my, my best response to the question is, is Australia gives with one hand and takes away with another and it kind of highlights some of the contradictions in the sorts of foreign policy uh, activities and behaviours that Australia undertakes, but also the sorts of kind of motivating factors around Australia's international behaviour. Because on the one hand, yes, we want to give money to East Timor to help it grow and to become prosperous and to become stable. But on the other hand, you know, Australia wasn't going to give up the opportunity to uh, further its own direct economic development by, by trying to exploit as much as possible um, the greatest proportion it could, it could get access to of the oil and gas deposits um, in the Timor Sea. We also give military aid to some of our regional rivals in things like short-range helicopters to the Indonesians and anti-piracy equipment to the Malaysians. 
What do we stand to gain from doing that? It certainly does reflect Australia's broad kind of strategic approach uh, in terms of the defence of the Australian continent itself, which has uh, long been predicated on maintaining security uh, and maintaining the well, maintaining the security, I should say, sorry, of the maritime and air approaches um, towards the Australian continent. So the the disposition of the Australian Defence Force and the sorts of weapons platforms that we, that we buy and procure and maintain are largely geared around being able to inflict significant or severe costs on any hostile foreign power attempting to maintain supply lines over large tracts of open ocean um, in the support of a potential invasion of Australia. So the good thing about being an island continent is that there's you know we're surrounded by open water and there's not um, there's not a lot of hiding places. So if we can maintain the security of our maritime approaches, then we we go a long way towards maintaining the security of the Australian continent itself. So in conclusion, what would you say to people who are suggesting we scrap our foreign aid budget? I mean, again, the whole point of spending money on foreign aid isn't just to allow developing countries to develop. It's to allow them to develop so that we can then for lack of a better term, it sounds bad, but exploit that development, right? Through increased trade and through increased economic exchange with these countries. So there's always a specific return on investment that Australia is trying to get, and every country is trying to get when it provides foreign aid. Again, foreign aid's not a an altruistic endeavor. There are specific objectives that countries are pursuing when they provide foreign aid funding. Because we were talking about soft power earlier, and again, soft power is about influence, it's about reputation, and Australia doesn't have a very good reputation when it comes to overseas development assistance and foreign aid. We are one of the least generous of uh, aid donors amongst the OECD countries. I mean, there are several European countries that give uh, up to, and in some instances, just over 1% of GNI. So they have consistently exceeded the 0.7% of GNI target. Uh, Australia is seen as, as relatively, well, stingy and thrifty for lack of better terms. Uh, and that's not necessarily a good thing, uh, particularly given the strategic challenges that Australia faces in its own immediate region. And I'm not necessarily advocating just throwing money at countries for the sake of throwing more money at them so that we can meet uh, a, a target. Uh, but surely there are ways in which Australia can meaningfully increase its aid funding uh, that will produce tangible benefits, not just for the countries to which we provide foreign aid, but also for Australians as well. Uh, some have suggested that you know foreign aid is a major way for Australia to kind of uh, leverage influence and, and exert influence on Pacific Island states. And you remove that and you remove uh, one major part of Australia's influence in the South Pacific region. As mentioned earlier, we have kind of core strategic interests in maintaining uh, stable, friendly governments that are free from hostile foreign influence in the South Pacific region. So certainly that strategic objective would be significantly diminished if we just stopped providing foreign aid altogether. Uh, ceasing all our foreign aid would be, in my view, incredibly detrimental to Australia's foreign policy and interests. Foreign aid is some of the best money this country or any world power could spend. These programs in most cases benefit both nations. 
We build schools in Indonesia not only because it helps educate their population, but because it helps prevent radicalization of their youth, whilst also bringing up a whole generation to think that Australia is a partner of Indonesia. We fund tuberculosis treatments in Papua New Guinea because it not only helps alleviate sickness from thousands of Papuans, but also because we know left unchecked, the disease is likely to get out of control and spread over the narrow strait into Queensland. At one point after the Korean War, South Korea was one of the poorest nations in the world, and in their moment of need, the USA, Australia, and many other nations invested foreign aid into the nation. And today, they are our fourth largest trading partner, buying nearly $20 billion worth of goods from us each year. If you have a Samsung phone, you can almost, without a doubt, thank foreign aid for that phone. And if we fail to do so, we also open the doors to others gaining the ground we have worked so hard to win. If we stop the aid to those Pacific nations, they will turn to other people to get it, and China will likely be that person. If our partners in this nightmare scenario were to switch sides, we could have Chinese planes mere minutes from the Australian mainland, destroying our national defence plans. All of this for 0.22 of a percent of our budget. We spend almost nothing on our foreign aid, but it lifts an awful lot of weight. So next time you hear someone saying we should cut the foreign aid budget and put Australia first, explain to them, we are putting Australia first. A huge thanks to all our guests on today's episode. This was a really interesting one for us to make and we hope you enjoy it. If you want to see more of the show or donate to us to help us bring bigger and better guests to you, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook on at the Redline Pod. You can also find me on Twitter at Mike Hilliard Oz. A huge thanks to Matt McDonald for coming on the show. You can check out more of his stuff in his new book, Security, The Environment and Emancipation, and I highly recommend you do so. Another big thanks to Tess, who brought an amazing Pacific perspective to this piece. You can find her on Twitter at Kane Tess. We also want to thank Will, who was an absolute pleasure to work with for this piece. His book, Risk and Hierarchy, was a big part of the research for this story. And you can find him on Twitter at Will Clampton. I would also like to thank Mark Spencer from the amazing Climactic Podcast for helping us out with the additional vocals for this episode. In any case, thank you again to all of our listeners. It is absolutely thrilling to watch the numbers go up and up with every single episode. And we will be back next fortnight with another international episode. But for now, thank you and good night. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to Conflicted, a podcast that tells stories of the Islamic past and present to help you make sense of the world today. Hosted by me, Thomas Small, author and filmmaker, and my good friend, Eamon Dean, an ex-Al-Qaeda jihadi turned MI6 spy, Conflicted is prepping its fifth season, which is coming to you very soon. And in the meantime, you can sign up to our Conflicted community. Subscribe to Conflicted wherever you get your podcasts.